Bigfoot, Skunk Ape, Grassman, Sasquatch. Just a few of the names given to the primate-like creature said to roam the woods and remote areas of North America. Tales of this elusive being go back for hundreds of years. Is it mere myth and legend? Or is there truly something more tangible to this phenomenon? Join us on this journey as we discuss the science behind the encounters, the research and the evidence, keeping you updated on the latest findings, ideas and hypothesis. Arrogance gets us nowhere and closing one's eyes doesn't make things disappear nor less real. Today's myth could be tomorrow's reality. It's time to make this subject matter less taboo. Welcome to Monster X Radio. Bigfoot without the BS. Welcome to the show, everyone. My guest is Ken Gearhard. Ken is a well-known cryptozoologist and field investigator who's traveled the world searching for evidence of mysterious animals and legendary beasts. Ken has contributed and appeared on many TV programs and documentaries, and he's also an author who has written such books as A Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts, Encounters with Flying Humanoids, Big Bird, Modern Sightings of Flying Monsters, Monsters of Texas, and his latest book, which will be our main topic of discussion, called The Essential Guide to Bigfoot. Let's get to it. Hello, Ken. Welcome to Monster X Radio. Glad to have you, man. Oh, it's great to be back. I know it's been a few years, but uh, it's always an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. Really appreciate that. It's been a while. I think the last time we were in each other's presence was at the Bigfoot Bolton Brews tour back in uh, September of last year, which is, of course is organized by the wonderful Cindy Cadell. Oh yeah, that was a great event. It was great seeing you and GG all my friends in the uh, Pacific Northwest. Uh, I miss all you guys on a regular basis. So, well, the the feelings mutual. We'll have to hopefully, you know, when things settle down and. And life gets hopefully back to normal. You'll be back out this way, whether it's uh, doing a, a speaking engagement or maybe some exploring. We'd love to have you back out. Absolutely, man. Uh, my, my heart is definitely up there in, in your neck of the woods. And, you know, it's interesting. There's a, there, there are different Bigfoot cultures as you travel around the country. I'm very fortunate to speak at different events and go to different things. And, you know, you've got different scenes around the country. They're all good people, you know, so it's just kind of different flavors. But um, sometimes they intermingle. Sometimes you'll get somebody <laughs> from from one region and another region at an event or something. It's always fun. But uh, we have a we have a wonderful Bigfoot community. Oh, I agree. I agree completely with you. And, and you do far more traveling than I do. But when I do get a chance to go, say, uh, to the Midwest or the East Coast. Uh, I got wonderful friends out that way. And um, hopefully one of these days I'll get down to one of those Texas conferences and get to hang out with you down your your home turf. Yeah, you, the Texas conference has been going on now for like 20 years. And uh, I've been there at almost every one. It's a great crowd. And 
good speakers and uh you know everyone's they're a bit more of a drawl you'll have to <laughs> everyone everyone has kind of that that southern flavor which is kind of fun you know that they call them, instead of bigfoot they're boogers and things like that right. but uh you know same yeah. thing yeah excellent well since the last time we were in each other's presence and we talked what, what have you been up to well um mainly i've been promoting my new book the essential guide to bigfoot you know the reason I decided to write it, Shane, for years I held off on writing a Bigfoot book because there are just so many excellent ones out there. I mean, you know, Krantz, Meldrum, Sanderson, Green, Bendernagel, you name it, Murphy. I mean, there, there are a bunch of great books with, you know, resources out there. But I guess what I noticed is a lot of those are a little bit older. So, you know, none of them really are able to push back against the influx of misinformation and hoaxes and things that are kind of becoming prevalent on the internet. So I just kind of wanted to, to, you know, to kind of update some of those things. Um, beyond that, you know, I'm working on a new book that I, I not really at liberty to talk about yet, but I'm excited about that. Hopefully it'll be out later this year on a different type of cryptid. And, uh, you know, I'm always, haven't been, unfortunately, like most haven't been able to get out in the field much this year, which has been discouraging. Uh, but, uh, you know, I understand everyone's dealing with challenges. So I'm just uh, <laughs> lying in wait and looking forward to getting out and beating the bush a little bit more. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. I've been doing a lot of, you know, interviews and, um, you know, working with other researchers around the country, which is always exciting, kind of bouncing things off each other and stuff. So always a lot going on. It's fun. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure you're still a busy guy regardless of what's going on out there, but are you still a a, a volunteer educator at the San Antonio Zoo? Is that still a, a thing with you? I am, but sadly the zoo has been closed now. Well, just just reopened recently, but um you know, for obvious reasons uh they had to shut down and uh, you know, our zoo is sadly one of the few zoos in the country that doesn't have any public funding, so it's all Oh wow based on ticket sales and contributions and concessions. So it really hurt us. Now, of course, we kept a full staff on to take care of the animals. That was never compromised one iota. If anyone out there listening to know that even when a zoo shuts down, they're paying people to take great care of the animals. And we had some animals born and stuff, uh, which was fun. But I'm looking forward to getting back there uh, maybe later this year as they ease back into things. But I love being associated with the San Antonio Zoo. And in fact, one of the greatest thrills I had there, Shane, was a, a couple of years ago, I was digging through kind of drawers of old bones and I found a snow leopard skull that I'm pretty sure was collected by or the result of the Tom Slick Yeti expeditions of the late 1950s wow. uh, led by Peter, Peter Byrne. And uh, I spoke to Peter at the, at Beachfoot and he told me that, that they actually did capture a uh, some snow leopards to bring back to the San Antonio Zoo as part of that expedition. And uh, I also heard that they were bred at the zoo for a while. So so we had some kind of, that's cool. We had kind of some Yeti-born uh, snow leopard <laughs> artifacts <laughs> that are kind of laying around. Nobody really knows about it except me, So, uh, but it's, it's pretty cool. Kind of sounds like the Smithsonian. You go digging in the, in the vaults back there, and you never know what's going to be discovered. <laughs> Yeah, can you imagine if there's like a Bigfoot tooth or something sitting in a drawer at some museum <laughs> mixed in with other animals, parts, and who knows, man, it's possible. Anything's possible, that, that, but the snow leopards, that's, that's so fascinating, and you know, you being involved with cryptozoology and knowing the history to come across that and recognize that that may be what it is, that's awesome. Yeah, it was an old skull, I mean, it was falling apart, so I mean, I could tell it was, 
it was dated. And uh, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's always fun. Yeah. The cryptozoology is such a vast field. People don't always realize how many different kind of layers that, that are involved in terms of, you know, the history and, and different investigations and expeditions, witnesses and things that have gone on through the years. So it's, it's always fun to learn that stuff. Well, keep plugging away at the zoo. I love your photos and your uh, feedback and the stuff you share on social media when it comes to Antonio Zoo. But what you just said there about cryptozoology is a perfect segue to my next question, which is from time to time, I get this question from folks. You know, they ask me, you know, what is a cryptozoologist? In your, mm. in your words, what, what is a cryptozoologist? Well, cryptozoology is taken from the Latin words crypto, which means hidden, and zoology, of course, which pertains to the study of animals. So the technical translation is the study of hidden animals. Um, hidden by hidden animals, uh, what is meant is uh, animals that are hidden from science. They have not been documented or described. And so that typically includes things that are, you know, kind of romantic, like Bigfoot, the Yeti, the Loch Ness Monster. Thunderbirds, Black Panthers, Lake Monsters. Now the field has evolved, you know, as many things have. It's not, it's not accepted as a, uh, an established science or an accredited science. It's kind of a pseudo or a frontier science. It's a, you know, a lot of laymen like myself that are involved, not necessarily true academics. But it's a, it's a study and a pursuit looking at the evidence. Um, you know, most of it is anecdotal legends and eyewitness accounts, but you do have, you know, sometimes you have controversial photographs, films, footprints, sonar readings, things that, that can be analyzed. And, you know, it, it can entail things that are, you know, less dramatic, like, um, you know, animals that are considered to be eradicated, like the ivory-billed woodpecker, which is a magnificent bird that may still be out there, even though it's considered extinct, the Tasmanian tiger or thylacine, things like that. But the field has evolved to involve, uh, to include some kind of far out type creatures too, like the Mothman and Dogman, werewolves and things like that. Now, a lot of cryptozoologists don't accept that because those things tend to seem to be more kind of supernatural or metaphysical in nature. They're not zoologically based. But, you know, it's just, it's happened, you know, uh, starting with Ivan Sanderson, who started getting into weird topics. And in the, in the weird 70s, you had cryptozoologists that started kind of looking into some of these weird cases. So it's, you know, uh, the chupacabra, that's kind of a strange one. So, I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, different cryptids or weird creatures that we investigate, but some are more viable than others in terms of, you know, reality and having a basis in, in the zoological world. Yeah, and you've covered a lot of these in your books. I mean, you're, you're quite the author. I own pretty much every book you have. You got The uh, Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts. Of course, your other book, Encounters with Flying Humanoids, Monsters mm -hmm. of Texas, and now your newest book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot. You cover a quite, a, I mean, in your books, I mean, you cover a wide variety of cryptids and, and topics. I really particularly love your newest book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot. I have copy number 29 signed by you, so it's in my prized oh, possessions. <laughs> much appreciated. That's very yeah. cool. Yep. Yeah, honored to have you uh, in that early <laughs> sequence of that first run that, I, that we ever did. I've dug into your book and absolutely love it. You have seven chapters, about 246 pages in your new book. And you have some, a lot of neat stuff in there. One of my favorite quotes 
of all time, and it's in your introduction to your book that you've included, is by the late Grover Krantz. And, I, and I'm going to quote it. The Sasquatch is ridiculous. The alternative of a hoaxer is impossible. Therefore, the ridiculous must be true. Why did you include that? I love that quote. Well, Krantz is one of my heroes, inspirations. I never had the honor of meeting him, but um, I liked the way, I really respected the way that he came at the Sasquatch Bigfoot mystery from a scientific background and looked at everything very analytically and very logically. And, um, you know, he's right. He, he spent a lot of years, he, he, of course, like most scientists, did thought Bigfoot was nonsense until he uh, examined the famous Bosberg crippled foot tracks back in 1969-70. And he was like, well, hold on, <laughs> hit the brakes here. <laughs> these these are real. These can't be, you know, he thought they might be faked at first, but then he started studying them and he realized that there were subtle nuances in there that, you know, if someone had faked those, that it would have been, the, you know, the most brilliant physical anthropologist in the world that, that had done it, you know, and it just, you know, he looked at things objectively and he decided that the evidence tipped the scales as, as, as incredible as it seemed, the evidence tipped the scales in, ter in terms of Bigfoot being a biological reality as opposed to a, a hoax or a cultural phenomenon or something else. And uh, this was based on the evidence he had looked at with, uh, you know, with his experienced eyes. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's what I think people need to keep in mind with regard to the topic of Bigfoot is, you know, as impossible as it seems to the vast majority of people out there, 88% of the population or something, you know, it, it it seems like there's enough evidence that would suggest that it it does exist, and that's you know, <laughs> so it's a it's a true paradox, isn't it, Shane? Because it's like you know, on the one hand, it just seems like it, there's no possible way it it could be, but you know, if if you start looking at the layers of evidence, it starts adding up. At least you know, to those of us or many of us who have who've looked at it for years and years. So uh, that's kind of the way Krantz saw it too. Looking at your book, uh, the Central Guide to Bigfoot. And uh, one of the other things I'd really admire about this book is, you know, you have a wonderful forward by Peter Byrne and an appendix on Bigfoot and DNA by uh, Dr. Haskell Hart, who I've had on the show before. I admire him hugely. But how did you get those two involved and to uh, do what they did and help you contribute to the book? Well, Haskell is my neighbor. He lives up here in uh, Canyon Lake, which is just uh, just north of San Antonio. So we've uh, you know, I, I met him at Beachfoot, and we've made fast friends. And uh, since we're kind of in the same neck of the woods, we get together and stuff. And you know, talk about another true academic. I mean, he's he's a guy with a PhD from Harvard, so he's a he's a pretty right. sharp guy. And uh, he's also been looking at the Bigfoot DNA and other aspects of the phenomenon with a with a scientific uh, background. So that's that's pretty cool. So I you know I wanted to discuss. I know Bigfoot DNA claims are. are fairly controversial and kind of a, a polarizing topic these days. I just felt like instead of addressing it, you know, in the, in my section of the book, I felt like, you know, he was so much beyond me in terms of being able to explain, you know, where we're at with, with the, the various claims and findings and so forth. And, you know, he did a brilliant job of that. Um, hopefully I'm not spoiling anything for him here, but he's actually 
working on a, uh, a, a book, a full book on Bigfoot DNA um, studies, which is, I, I think, going to drop soon. And it's, I've gotten a peek at it. It's pretty mind blowing. So, um, Fascinating. but, but uh, Peter Byrne, of course, is, you know, one of the, one of the, like Krantz and inspiration, uh, you know, growing up, watching him on in search of searching for the Yeti and doing all these things. And, you know, he's like a real life Indiana Jones and um, met him at Beachfoot as well. He was a very approachable guy. And it just, when I started writing the Bigfoot book, I really wanted to connect the new generation of researchers to the, to the history as much as possible to the foundational things that have been laid down. And, you know, I just, it just occurred to me one day, I was like, I wonder if Peter would consider honoring me with a foreword if, if I <laughs> reached out to him and uh, I emailed him and yeah, he was very gracious. And uh, so that was, that was quite an honor. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Peter Burns, what, 93, 94, he's, he's getting up there and he's still, he, the funny thing about Peter is he still gets out there and actively looks at reports. He's still doing investigations. He's, you know, it, in his, even in his later years, he's still getting out there doing that. And I was stoked to see that he wrote the forward. Yeah. And no doubt. And I mean, when he was younger, I mean, he spent two or three pretty hard years camped up in the Himalaya, high in the Himalayas, living in a cave with his brother, you know, on Tom Slick's dime searching for the <laughs> Yeti. But, uh, you know, and of course, he, he's a, a war veteran and big game hunter and uh, he's a conservationist now. So, I mean, he's a he's a pretty, pretty uh, adventurous and active guy and uh, yet another level of inspiration there if we can all, you know, try to strive to keep going as long as possible and do as much as we can like he has you know yeah what would peter do i, I just i i got a lot of affirmation for the guy so i was just glad once again to see him in your book yeah well one last thing i'd like to say yeah. about peter and i think i mentioned this in the book is that you know it's no secret that there's always been a lot of kind of infighting hostility and craziness in the bigfoot field because of all the big egos and pig-headed researchers as john crean called them Peter obviously was the target of a lot of, you know, mud slung at him and different things and conflicts, but he's always remained a perfect gentleman, in my opinion. You know, he's always kind of stayed above the fray, hasn't engaged in a lot of the name calling and things that other researchers did. So, I mean, I, I think that's to be commended as well. I agree. I agree 100%. Well said. Now, you kind of already covered this um, earlier, but I still want to ask you again, you know, what really drew you or compelled you to write a book of this nature? I, obviously, you were talking earlier about the younger generation and, and all. Is, is that really what compelled you to, to uh, take on this endeavor? Well, the first thing I like to tell people is, you know, I don't anoint myself as the know-all, end-all of Bigfoot experts or, or even an expert, quote-unquote. You know, that's, that's a word that is pretty lofty. And, uh, I, you know, I honestly don't think there are any technically any experts in the Bigfoot field because we're dealing with so many unknowns, but what you have is a lot of speculation and there are different levels of that. So there are people that can speculate be, that have more of a foundation of knowledge and more of an analytical mind and spend a lot more time doing it. And then there are people that speculate just off the cuff and say, well, this is what I think, you know, without putting a lot of, so what I tried to do is kind of consolidate all of the best research that's been done for decades by people like Peter Byrne, Grover Kranz, John Green, Renee DeHinden, 
you know, Bob Titmus, all the people that spent decades collecting evidence, interviewing witnesses out in the bush, and they didn't agree on a lot of things, but there were a lot of things they did agree on for the most part. And those were a lot of, that is the foundation of Bigfoot research. I think we can all agree that when there's been that much time and effort and passion put into a subject and, you know, there are, there are things that we can kind of build on. So I, and that was another thing I wanted to do was kind of say, you know, there's so much misinformation out there. There are so many people that don't know where to get their information from or, you know, who to believe. And uh, so, you know, I just want, wanted to kind of draw together like, you know, the analytics or metrics of Bigfoot, you know, how big are they really, or could they be, how many are they, what do they really look like, you know, all of those types of things. And then also incorporate a lot of the science the behind, you know, the reality, which is what would they eat? Where would they go? <laughs> what do they hibernate? You know, a lot of those questions that people have. Why can't we find the remains? That's a whole chapter in the book because that's a pretty big question. And then, of course, you know, I was able to include a lot of my own research. I've, I've been very fortunate to travel all over North America, investigate, you know, Bigfoot in different areas from Alaska to Florida to Central America, you know, wherever. And um, I also wanted to include some of the best evidence in terms of some of the better sightings and, you know, the footprint evidence and things like that. So. You know, it's just kind of a, a combination. It's kind of a primer for people that are getting into the subject. But I think even experienced Bigfoot people will hopefully find some little gems in there that, you know, little kernels of, of knowledge that maybe they didn't have access to before. So, Yeah, I mean, the, your book really, it doesn't just give you the basics to understand a phenomenon. It also does, I mean, really has a tremendous and comprehensive amount of detail with a r- wide range of theories as to what Sasquatch may be kind of like you're going on talking about there. I mean, you cover all sorts of facets, angles, theories, and different hypotheses in the book. But I got to ask you, is there one particular theory when it comes to Sasquatch that, uh, that you subscribe to as to, you know, what they may be? Well, um, you know, I know for many years, Gigantopithecus was, you know, the, the leading candidate. I mean, it made a lot of sense in terms of the size, you know, based on the reconstructions of this giant, Miocene Asian ape. It was possibly 10 feet tall, weighed a thousand pounds. You know, we didn't know if it walked upright or not. The Grover Krantz had some good arguments as to why it might have been a bipedal ape. That model has changed through the years through, you know, different studies. And now they think maybe it was, it was more of like a, a quadrupedal thing and, you know, but who knows, but I think kind of the hot theory that's kind of come up in recent years, uh, and I know this is endorsed by the likes of Dr. Jeff Meldrum and Cliff Berrickman and others, Lauren Coleman, uh, is that it is a descendant of Paranthropus, uh, which was a robust Australopithecine that lived in Africa about, you know, one and a half million years ago. And they were generally very, the ones that have been found in Africa were only about five feet tall. I mean, they weren't, but they were very powerfully built and they had huge jaws and a sagittal crest. In fact, the nickname was Nutcracker Man when they first found it because it (laughs) had this big nutcracker looking jaw. Now it looks, you know, in terms of the physical description, the archetypical Bigfoot or Sasquatch, it's almost a complete match in terms of what people describe except for the height. So, uh, you know, it's not unreasonable to hypothesize that 
some of these descendants of these uh, Paranthropus uh, hominids migrated out of Africa at some point across Asia, like Homo erectus and other hominids, and maybe crossed the land bridge into from Asia into North America. And I think there's another factor there, which is, you know, during the Ice Age, the Pleistocene Epoch, a lot of animals got really, really big and hairy because it was so cold. You know, you had the glacial movements. So, I mean, you look at woolly mammoths and woolly rhinos and bears were bigger and beavers were bigger. And so all these North American megafauna animals were just giant, huge and, and shaggy uh, to, you know, to kind of adapt to that cold weather environment. So, I mean, you know, it, it's not unreasonable to speculate that, you know, something like Paranthropus, if it were still around tens of thousands of years ago in North America, would have also gotten much, much bigger. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of a kind of an interesting theory, but we don't really know. There's another theory, of course, I bring up in the books, which is hominid X, which is basically saying that, you know, the fossil history is so sparse, particularly with hominids, that there's a good chance that we've never found any representative or fossil evidence of what Bigfoot is. We just, you know, have never found that. So, but it does fit in, you know, the overall paradigm of sequence of hominids that evolved in Af starting in Africa about, you know, a few million years ago and up until the, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. It fits in with all, a lot of those different species in terms of the basic physical descriptions. Yeah, and, and that's my personal favorite theory, the X factor, because there's, I mean, consistently and constantly they're finding new hominids and, and new yep. species. I mean, all around the world, uh, I, I keep waiting to turn on the news the next day or look at my no uh, local paper and see, you know, some new uh, fossil find that kind of blows um, past theories out of the water. And it's happening all the time. Yep. No doubt. Yeah, it's it's a bushy family tree. That's what we've found out in recent decades. You're right. There are so many discoveries that are being made, mostly in Africa and somewhat in Asia. None, none in the Americas yet. That would be yep. pretty amazing if that were to happen. But um, yeah, it, it was a bushy family tree and it was diverse and there were a lot of different branches and offshoots. So uh, certainly Bigfoot could fall in any of those. Uh, but the obvious thing is that it, you know, it's it's a hominin because it walks upright like us. I say hominid in the book. There's a distinction. Hominins are more closer to, to homo hominid also incorporates like the orangutans um, which gigant yeah and gigantopithecus was kind of more so you know i i try to leave it a little bit broader and more open like we don't really know how human-like it was you know it it walked upright way walked very much like us but beyond that we just we just don't know exactly we just don't know and i really appreciate that uh, that angle and your thoughts there you know uh, in chapter five of the book and it's titled Littlefoot. You talk about, and excuse me if I don't pronounce this right, but uh, the Ibu Gogo. This particular, yeah, this particular cryptid I find uh, just fascinating. Yeah. So I, I did. A, I dedicated a chapter in the book to something called Littlefoot, which is basically a the same thing as the quote unquote proto pygmies that Ivan Sanderson first wrote about back in the 1950s. Basically, little hairy men, you know, and something much smaller than Bigfoot, pygmy sized, but, you know, otherwise very similar in terms of hair covered, man-like, powerful, you know. Um, but as you get into the Bigfoot field, or I, I have through the, through the years and traveled around, and particularly speaking to different indigenous peoples and First Nation peoples, 
you know, they often will talk about Bigfoot or the hairy man, but they'll also bring up, you know, the little ones, uh, the little people. And they'll talk about, you know, these traditions are very strong in a lot of different cultures all over the continent. And uh, so that that's where I started hearing these stories. Um, you know, of course, I'd read about them first in Sanderson's books, but um, it seems to be there there could be another second species of relic hominid out there that is much smaller than Bigfoot, standing anywhere from three to five feet tall. You know, there is an argument that, that these could be juvenile versions of Bigfoot or Sasquatch. I guess in some cases they might be, but the traditions that you look at, and again, they're very widespread in a lot of different cultures, um, refer to them as a race of, of beings. Um, and they're very mischievous and greatly feared. Uh, they're not friendly and, and you know benevolent. They seem to be <laughs> fond of abducting people and doing different things. But the Ibu Gogo is kind of a version that um, of the little people that uh, are reported on the island of uh, Flores, which is you know where uh, fossils were found in 2003. Fossils were found of a little. Just like we were talking about, a, a new species of hominid was found. It was called Homo floresiensis, and uh, I think they found the remains of 12 individuals. But based on the reconstructions, these things only stood about three feet tall. They were not human, Homo sapiens. They were a different species, had some very primitive traits and characteristics. Uh, so, And they lived up until about up 50,000 years ago, based on the, the, the carbon dating. So. Isn't it interesting that on that very same little island, you have a native tradition of something called the Ibu Gogo, which are little hairy man-like creatures with pot bellies that are kind of nasty. And, um, you know, at one point they would uh, steal food and things from the natives, but then things kind of took a turn for the worse and they started cannibalizing children, allegedly. And uh, so they were supposedly, according to one famous story, eradicated by trapping them all in their cave and setting a fire at the mouth and smoking them to death, suffocating them. But uh, there's also a story that some of, some of these creatures may have escaped into the woods where they live to this day. So that, that's the Ibu Gogo. Uh, that per particular region is actually not too far away, uh, hopping from island to island, from uh, Sumatra, where you, of course, have the Orang Pendek, or the Short Man, which is a very famous, probably the most famous little foot out there. Yeah, which is also included in your book, and you go into depth on, on that. Some of the other cryptids in your book, you know, you got the Yeti in there and, and many others. And I, I, the Ibu Gogo just, it fascinates me because of it, you know, where it's uh, reported to be in the world and the history there and mm -hmm. cl close proximity to some of the other anthropological finds that have been from that area. So. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. It, you're right. It, it it is intriguing when you have those those stories, and and uh, then then the fossils show up, and you're like, wow, this is kind of a coincidence, you know, that uh, something that looked like the Ibu Gogo actually did exist on this island fifty thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah. Ken, what was what was your favorite part of working on this book or or putting together? What what did you really enjoy when you sat down and and, and were working on this? Well, like in any, like with every book that I write, it's it's just the research. I'm a research junkie. I love to read. I've got an amazing library, and of course, the internet is is vast and expansive. So you just have so much information out there. And I think one of the thrills was probably interviewing. I interviewed, um, and I didn't, you know, there, 
there was a cutoff point by, I interviewed about a dozen researchers um, and I could have easily gone beyond that to a second or third dozen, you know, including you and other people that are, you know, there's just so many really good people out there doing, doing amazing work, but I, I cut, you know, I had a limit. So I, <laughs> you know, I talked to, um, I interviewed a lot of the more experienced researchers out there and uh, at depth over the phone. And, you know, that was kind of fun, you know, cause it just, Hey, there's nothing like calling up a buddy across the country and, Hey, let's, let's talk about Bigfoot and Sasquatch for a couple of hours. And let me just really get your kind of, and kind of like what you're doing now. I was the interviewer, you know, it was like, wow, I get to pick these brains and, you know, see what, see what some of these people think about different things. And, you know, I even spoke to some skeptics, you know, people like uh, Ben Radford and Steve Stewart and people like that, that have more of a skeptical. I wanted to get all the different points of view and perspectives. So, you know, I thought that was important as well. So, um, so yeah, you know, just the reading, the research, finding those little, you know, hidden gems that we were talking about earlier when you, you know, you, you think, you know, a subject, you've been investigating it, researching it for decades. And then all of a sudden you find something new and you're like, wow, I never, never heard that one before, you know? And, uh, Sometimes those are kind of fun to, to find. Excellent, excellent. Now, um, what can people expect from your, your latest book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot? Uh, what do you want them to take away you know, after they, they finish reading it? What, what's the message there? Or what are you trying to get across? Well, I think the main thing, and you know, I, I, there's one chapter in there that talks about kind of the, the sociological and psychological impact of Bigfoot and how it affects all of us and how we all react to it. You know, look, it's a very highly controversial premise that you have these subhuman, giant subhuman, monstrous, terror-covered, you know, creatures that are potentially out there running around in the woods. And, um, you know, people have very, very strong opinions about that uh, in different ways. But the the most difficult thing for everyone when dealing with the subject is for us to sort of detach ourselves from our emotional minds and our biases. And there are so many things that we want to believe or, you know, that we, we have opinions about. And um, I, I think that the subject matter deserves the respect in terms of, you know, us being able to as, as much as possible detach ourselves from that emotional side and look at the evidence and look at the sightings and, all of the information as objectively as possible and try to incorporate more science. You know, Let, let's all become more, more like those of us that are researchers and investigators. Let's try to become more like citizen scientists, you know, where we look at approach it from a more academic or scientific perspective and, you know, have peers that review our work and not rush to conclusions or, you know, things like that, you know, because I, th- I think it is, it's frustrating because we've many of us have been doing this for a long time, and uh, you know Peter Byrne, uh, you know he spent his whole life searching but never never quite found one. So um, you know if any of us are going to find or prove that Bigfoot exists, and that you know it's going to be a team effort, you know I, I just think we need to um, you know be smart about it. Yeah, Ken, you're definitely carrying the torch, and uh, I'm a big fan of you, um, not just of your your writings, your books. I'm also a fan of what you do. And I know you've been on a bunch of TV shows and, and, but you're also just a gentleman, uh, an amazing person uh, with no ego. And I really, really appreciate that, especially in this day and age where, yeah, 
there is a lot of great people out there, but there's also individuals that like to banter and, and argue. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. Um, very kind of you to say. Maybe I'm I'm borrowing a page from Peter's playbook day there, but um, you know, again, if it's a unified effort, if everyone can be civil and work together, if we can have discourse, that's important, you know, and not just fight and argue and and so forth. It, that never seems to really accomplish anything. But you know, I get it. I understand. Um, I've worked with people in a lot of different fields for, <laughs> for my whole life, and I understand that people are you know, very, very different. You know, everyone's an individual and everyone has a very strong opinion. And again, particularly with something like Bigfoot, but, um, you know, it is discouraging when you see a lot of, you know, kind of the overzealousness and, uh, unbridled enthusiasm that, uh, that goes on in the field where, uh, but you know, who, who am I to question, right, Shane? But I'm just saying, you know, there, there's some people that I think just jump, you know, they're all in or they're, you know, all out. they're oftentimes they're trying to make the evidence they're finding fit the theory, which is not how science is supposed to work. If you have a theory, you don't go out looking for cherry picking evidence that's going to, you know, <laughs> you might, you know, you have to also welcome those red herrings that pop up that say, oh, whoa, OK, this is a game changer. Maybe I was on the wrong track. There's nothing wrong. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's nothing wrong with any of us being wrong or, or just not knowing the answers at this point. Can where can one purchase uh, the essential guide to Bigfoot or any of your books for that matter? Well, uh, thanks for asking. Um, all of my books are available on Amazon. I have an author page. Just look up Ken Gerhard. Uh, the essential guide to Bigfoot is available in print and now Kindle format. And um, all my books should be on there. And uh, if any listeners out there are interested in an autographed copy, they can contact me through social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, I'm happy to hook them up with a, with a signed copy as well. Awesome. And I tell you people, definitely um, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot is one of my favorite Bigfoot books, bar none. I'll, I absolutely love it. And um, it's for all walks of the Bigfoot world, whether you're a seasoned veteran researcher, investigator, or just an enthusiast, you know, definitely check this book out. I guarantee you won't regret it. I'm going to leave a review on Amazon here shortly. Uh, but uh, checking out the reviews on Amazon, uh, pretty stellar reviews, and I didn't expect anything less. So good job, Ken. I'm looking forward to your uh, upcoming book, this new book you're working on, and and hopefully uh, you'll jump back on the show, man. Well, thanks. Uh, I guess uh, I'll, I'll use this opportunity to leak out the first privy bit of information about the new book. It will be the second offering in the Essential Guide to uh, series. <laughs> so, that's all I'm going to say at this point, but uh, it's, it's kind of following a similar blueprint. But okay. Shane, I appreciate your kind words. You, you are also a true gentleman and it's always a real pleasure to speak with you. Well, thank you so much, Ken. And I do want one of those top 10 copies of this new book. Uh, you heard it okay. here first. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it on hold right now. I don't care if it costs <laughs> extra. It's, I want it. <laughs> I think I, I, based on some of our conversations in the past, I get the sense that, that this one might interest you. So I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll put one of the first 10 aside for you. Perfect. I appreciate it, Ken. And uh, we'll, definitely, we'll definitely have you back on. Um, thanks for giving us a little tidbit of information there. Really looking forward to it. And again, folks, check out The Essential Guide to Bigfoot by Ken Gearhart. Ken, thank you again for jumping on here. Absolutely. We'll have to do it again real soon. And I hope everyone out there is... Uh, 
feeling well and staying safe. All right, man. Absolutely. Take care. Take care.